Genesis 12, 1 through 4, 10 through 20. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The word of the Lord. Reading from Genesis 14, 13 through 24. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all his, the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Lamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the, God, to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for the long story of your faithfulness. The long story of your faithfulness 
and the way in which uh, we get to be um, gathered up into that story that in a very real way, the story of our lives is the story of discovering you, discovering you faithful, discovering you faithful precisely in the areas where we're tempted to imagine you're not. Well, will you please do that right now? Will you reveal your goodness, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness? And will you reorient our hearts and give us a capacity, a, an inclination to trust you uh, in a greater extent to which we've had to this point. That's a miracle. So please come and do that miracle. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, everybody, please turn back uh, mainly to the first reading, but we're going to look at both of those, and we're kind of launching into a series of weeks where we're going to be looking at Abram. We're continuing in the book of Genesis. Um, Abram, Abraham, same guy. We'll get to his name change in a few weeks. Um, but here's the thing with Abram. It is hard to exaggerate the impact that Abram has had on the history of the world. Um, just the easiest way to illustrate that is you think about Judaism, uh, you think about Christianity, you think about Islam, all of them trace their roots back to Abram. And if you count up the numbers, that's a huge percentage of the world is impacted uh, by this one man who lived a long time ago. And and it's more than just the religious community because the uh, what sometimes is called ethical monotheism that comes from Abram impacts not just the religious community, but it really impacts any number of uh, philosophical visions for ethics that have come down to us through the ages. So his influence on the world is just incalculable. Um, but that is also true if you narrow the scope and if you just think about the Bible. Um, you know that the Bible is a big book. Uh, lots of storylines in the Bible. Um, but all of the storylines of redemption, every last one of them, traces their origins back to uh, the very first verses of uh, chapter 12. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham, is where God's redemptive purpose in the Bible really gets off the ground and the story begins to unfold in a whole new way. So his influence is incalculable. But here's the question, why, my question is, why did Abram have such a remarkable impact? Uh, he's, not a, he's not a king. He is not an emperor. He is not a great philosopher. He's not even a particularly great religious teacher. Um, one of the main things that he did is, is he had two sons, which isn't that unique. Uh, and actually, he had a lot of problems in his family. That's not unique either. He, he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't fit the profile of the kind of great person of history that I might imagine. And, and maybe I could hear somebody say, oh, well, no, it's not his great achievements. It's his remarkable moral virtue um, that made him so great. And, and that's, uh, I, I can see that. Um, however, if that's what you're going to put it down to, then you're going to have to wrestle with that first reading, right? Because he's a train wreck. And so I ask the question again, what is it that explains Abram's remarkable impact on the world? Why does that question matter? Well, it matters if you are a Christian, it matters a great deal because by definition, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then that means you are a, you are a spiritual descendant of Abram. 
Um, so Abram's impact is, is your heritage. In fact, it means that God's mission for Abram that you get in the beginning of that first reading has, is deeply uh, related to God's mission for your life. You're part of the same story if you belong to Jesus. And therefore, you'll never understand the impact that God wants to affect through you and your life until you understand uh, how God affected great impact through um, Abram. So you, you need to understand Abram's life if you're a Christian. But those of us who are not Christians, who are um, trying to figure out whether or not following Jesus is a good idea, we're just so privileged that you're here, um, you need to wrestle with Abram too. Why? Well, because Abram is uh, one of the early models of the life of faith. And so you need to wrestle with Abram to figure out whether or not following Jesus is a good idea. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these two stories, two little vignettes of Abram's life. We're going to focus mainly first, more, on the first reading. Um, but as we look at them both, here's what I want to show you. Here it is. The impact of your life rests upon the object of your trust. The impact of your life rests upon the object of your trust. What in the world does that mean, Jim? Well, thank you for asking. Come with me into the readings and let's see. Begin with the first reading. Um, well, as I've already said, the first reading begins with one of the great turning points in the Bible and in all of history. The scene opens up. Abram's just kind of a regular guy, a guy from Sumer, which is in modern-day Iraq and Syria. And for some reason that we don't entirely understand, God chooses him. We don't know why. But God chooses him. God interrupts his life. And in verse 2, God makes a remarkable promise. God says, Abram, I'm going to give you a family. And it's eventually going to become a big family. In fact, it's going to become a whole nation. And through, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family, and through your family, I'm going to renovate the world. Through your family, I'm going to bring blessing that will touch every corner of this earth. It's a remarkably big promise. And, again, remarkably, Abram is up for it. And he, he leaves his family, and he uh, becomes a, he adopts a semi-nomadic life in an area that we would call the West Bank and uh, the Negev Desert, among some other places. Uh, but then that's when the wheels come off. Look at verse 10. Famine hits. Might have been a drought, might have been locusts, we're not sure. But the point is, Abram slams up into economic catastrophe. You can think of the, uh, imagine the stark stock market crashing, a, a massive recession where you lose uh, your job and your home and your savings all at the same time. Uh, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've feared it. And in a blink of an eye, Abram uh, finds himself and his family, uh, they are economic migrants. Uh, verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Uh, that word sojourn is a really important word. It can include the idea of being an economic migrant or a political refugee. Um, I mentioned before that uh, many, arguably most of the s redemptive storylines of the Bible get their uh, start here with the story of Abram. And, 
and the concept of being a sojourner is one of those. The Bible reserves a special dignity for sojourners. Um, it becomes part of the fundamental identity of anybody who belongs to God, that we are sojourners. We are migrants in the midst of this world. We have citizenship in a different country, so to speak, the kingdom of God. And all that whole big idea begins right here. So Abram becomes an economic migrant, and, and right here he is feeling the frightening bite of starvation. And so he heads for Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, the Nile River made uh, Egypt almost famine-proof. But as soon as he gets down to Egypt, he realizes he's kind of jumped from the frying pan into the fire. Uh, why? Well, because we've mentioned this in weeks past, ancient pagan kings reserved the right to draft any woman they wanted into their harem. And Abram knows this, and he expects that his wife Sarai is going to uh, attract um, the wrong kind of attention. And Abram suspects that what they're going to do is they're going to kill Abram in order to steal his wife. And so he hatches a plan. Look at verse 15. He says to Sarai, Say you are my sister, so that it will go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. You see the word me? It may go well with me. You see the word my? Do you realize what's happening? Uh, Abram is sacrificing his wife into exploitation so that he can save his skin. Except it's worse. So Abram actually, he gets rich through the whole thing. Verse uh, 16, uh, Pharaoh just um, gives him a fortune uh, for Sarai. And if that wasn't sober enough, let me add another layer. Because remember that Genesis was written to the people of Israel soon after they were leaving Egypt. Many hundreds of years later, after Israel had been enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh's hand for many, many years, they came out of Egypt, and in the midst of their liberation, they got to read this, perhaps for the first time. So you can imagine the first readers of Genesis. They were people whose minds had been shaped by the experience of being enslaved under Pharaoh's hand. And so you can put yourself in their shoes and imagine what it was like for them to read verse 15. Take a look at it. And Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house. The first readers of uh, Genesis, they knew very well the horrors of Pharaoh's house. And now they watch as their matriarch is, so to speak, sold away, given over to exploitation by their patriarch. Uh, some of us have, know what it's like um, to be under, to be betrayed by terrible, uh, toxic spiritual leadership. And something of that betrayal is here. Abram's influence is massive, but his impact here is abysmal. And do you notice that the Bible doesn't airbrush Abram at this point? I mean, if I were the, if I were the editor of Genesis, I, I'd want to I'd skip this bit. Uh, copy, cut. 
Um, and I'd want to do that because I'd, I'd want to say something like, well, I want to present the fathers of the faith in the best possible light. Um, I want to, we all need role models. Don't we need role models? So let's, you know, put a good face on it. Um, thankfully, I am not the editor of Genesis. And the Bible is not in the first instance interested in role models. The Bible in the first instance is interested in opening up the human heart and showing the evil resident within the human heart that we want to avoid. And then the Bible is very keen to point us from the wickedness within the human heart to the God who can be victorious over it. Let me explain more what I mean by that. Go back to the beginning of the first reading. So verses 2 and 3. So back, back up, God calls Abram. And he gives him at least two promises. He says, on the one hand, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I want to bless you, Abram. I, I want to take care of you. I want to provide for you. I want to take care of everything, that every need that really, really matters, I'm going to take care of, Abram. And then the second promise is, that I, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to use you to bless the world. There's a promise of provision. That's the first one. I'm going to bless you. And then there's a promise of impact. I'm going to bless through you. See that? And the question is, is, is Abram, Abram going to uh, trust God? Is he going to take God at his word? And, and at first he does, but then, but then Abram slams up into everything he fears the most. He's afraid of starving by famine. He's afraid of dying by Pharaoh. And he's crushed by an economic threat, and he's crushed by a security threat. And under that crushing pressure, his trust shifts. His trust shifts from the promise of God, I will bless you with provision, I will bless you with impact. He shifts from trusting God's promise to trusting maybe himself or the power that Pharaoh promises him. And that shift, Emmanuel, I want you to see that that shift from trusting the Lord to trusting something not the Lord is disastrous for Sarai. The impact of your life, Emmanuel, rests upon the object of your trust. And when the object of Abram's trust is the Lord, his impact is blessing. And when the object of his trust is not the Lord, he becomes something more like a curse. And you should think of it from Abram's perspective because, I mean, Abram's intention, I'm sure, was not to exploit. He didn't get up in the morning and said, I want to exploit today, everybody. His intention was to survive. But the problem is, when we trust in something that's not the Lord, our ethical imagination gets warped. Our moral sense gets distorted. So that Abram looks from his need, his hunger, and his fear, and then he looks at Pharaoh. And there looking at Pharaoh, he feels the full weight of Pharaoh's wealth and his power. And in that moment, selling out his wife just seems pragmatic. 
It's the least bad choice I've got, says the twisted moral imagination of Abram. Because he felt vulnerable. And he felt exposed to Pharaoh's power. And that combination can make wickedness seem reasonable. And Emmanuel, I wonder if you might apply this to your family. And the odd, terrible dynamics that maybe you've experienced there. Or your industry. What happens when people are scared and compelled by power? And of course, you can apply this to nations, to the world, to your neighborhood. Uh, Abram, he's morally inebriated. He's intoxicated. And his faithful, faithlessness yields exploitation. And his impact is terrible, and it rests on misdirected trust. The impact of your life, Emmanuel, rests upon the object of your trust. What do you trust? Now, keep all that in your mind, and more briefly, turn to the second story. Look at the second uh, reading. Um, this is just an excerpt of it. You can kind of tell we jumped in halfway through. Um, and, but here, what I want you to see is we get a different Abram. Um, here's the situation. So we're back now. This is some time later. We're back in Canaan, modern Israel-Palestine. And war breaks out between a bunch of different cities. And in the fighting, Abram's nephew, Lot, uh, gets taken captive, along with a bunch of other people and a bunch of property. And you need to keep in mind that in this context, there's no overarching like legal structure to hold any of these folks accountable. And so Abram gathers a coalition and he goes out, he fights with the people that took Lot captive. Uh, he liberates Lot, he liberates all the other captives, and he takes back everything, all the property that was stolen. And in that moment, Abram has just a remarkable amount of power. He could have set himself up as a little pharaoh. He has everything he felt like he needed when he was sojourning in Egypt. He's got, he's wealthy, and he's got power. But he doesn't set himself up as a little king. It's remarkable. He sets all the captives free, and he gives, he gives 10% of his income. That's the beginning of tithe. Um, to a priest king of Jerusalem. The word Salem is short for Jerusalem. And can you see the difference? He's willing to risk and sacrifice himself for the liberation of others. And then he's, not, he's no longer grasping on the money like he did before. And he, the faithfulness of one man yields liberation for many. Previously, he had seemed like a curse to those around him, but now he's become a blessing to many. And the question is, what is it that changed? What is it that changed? What explains his impact? Well, we get a clue in verse 18. Do you see the word Melchizedek? That's a fun word to say. Uh, we don't know much about him, um, but we know that he was a priest, and we know that he was a king, and then we know he was a priest king of Jerusalem. Uh, Salem means Jerusalem. And after the battle, he comes to Abram with a message. Look at verse 20. He says this, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, what's going on there? Well, you can think of it this way. Melchizedek is preaching a gospel. 
good news to Abram. Melchizedek is telling Abram a lesson he desperately needs to learn. It's as if Melchizedek is saying, Abram, do not trust in Pharaoh. Do not trust yourself to the power that comes from humanity. Do not trust yourself even to your own wealth. It's as if Melchizedek is saying to Abram, none of that is what delivered you. None of that is what saved you. None of that is what gave you the victory. You were delivered and you were given the victory not by human power, not by your own skill or your competence or anything that you can hold in your own hands, but by God Most High. It was God, the same God who called you all those years ago. It's as if Melchizedek is saying, the same God who promised to bless you and to bless the world through you. It was that Lord who caused this victory to occur, and he is the only worthy object of your trust. Now, Emmanuel, here's what I want you to see. The impact of your life rests upon the object of your trust. And so where do you rest your trust? And let me ask it this way. Where do you place your trust when you feel vulnerable, when you're scared? And where do you place your trust when someone or something very powerful offers you something you feel like you desperately need? Because those can be the moments where our moral imagination can be warped and we can justify terrible things. It was the least best option I had. It was, the, it was the only option I had, we might imagine saying. So the question is, how can we become a people who trust the Lord in those moments? Well, Genesis is designed to teach us. Go back to the first reading, and again, put yourself in the uh, minds of the first readers of Genesis. Remember, they're Israelites. They've come out of being enslaved in Egypt through the mighty hand of the Lord. And there they're reading this or hearing this, and, and they read of Sarai's exploitation. And when they hear of Sarai's exploitation, all the horrors of their past come flooding back. But then they read verse 17. And verse 17 brings back all the wonder of their salvation. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, if you are an Israelite that's just come out of Egypt, those words are unmistakable. Those words are an unescape, inescapable precursor, foreshadowing of the liberation you had just experienced. Your mind will be flooded about how you were enslaved by Pharaoh and you were economically vulnerable, and you were politically oppressed, and in those moments you didn't see anybody who was worthy of your trust. Nobody, could, nobody was going to save you, but then that was the moment when the Lord broke in on your life. If you're ancient Israel, that was the moment when the Lord broke into their lives and defeated Pharaoh with a series of plagues. And that's when the Lord delivered your oppressors into your hand and liberated all of Israel. And now, after they've had that experience, they read this story and they find out that this wasn't a one-off. That the Lord's faithfulness had begun long before this. That the Lord's faithfulness is persistent through time. 
And then if he was long, if he was faithful long ago to liberate Sarai, and if he was faithful to liberate Israel from Egypt, then he will be faithful in the future for whatever the people of God will face. You see, in order to trust the Lord, you've got to learn and see the persistent faithfulness of God through time. That's what Israel had to learn, and that's what we've got to see. The impact of your life rests upon the object of your trust. So how is it that we can bring ourselves to a deep and resilient trust in the Lord? How do we trust in the Lord when we're vulnerable? How do we trust in the Lord when we're frightened? How do we trust in the Lord when it's simpler to give ourselves to the powerful or to give ourselves to the influential or to just rest upon our own skill? How do you trust the Lord and have the moral courage to stand against evil when it seems naive and impractical and impossible to do so? The answer is, you've got to see the persistent faithfulness of the Lord who delivers. You've got to look at the Lord and you've got to be moved by the Lord who watched Pharaoh take Sarai into his house. And the Lord looked at that and said, no, 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 that's not going to last. No, I'm going to step in. You've got to be moved by the Lord who many years later saw all of Israel brought into another Pharaoh's house and crushed under the weight of his oppression. And the Lord responded to that by saying, no, no, no. No, I'm going to send plagues and I'm going to awaken Egypt and I'm going to show Pharaoh that there's a God in heaven who holds every tyrant accountable and no one's immune before the throne of God. You've got to be able to see the faithfulness of God in his justice on behalf of the exploited and the oppressed because when you're frightened of exploitation and when you felt the crushing weight of oppression, you've got the only God that you can trust is a God of justice. But then you've also got to see that he's a God of mercy too and he's a God of mercy for you and for that you've got to look at the priest king of Jerusalem. Not just Melchizedek, but the greater Melchizedek. The priest king of Jerusalem who hung upon a cross. Because he's not only the greater priest king of Jerusalem, he's also the greater Abram. Abram sacrificed his wife so he could save his life. But Jesus Christ sacrificed his life so he could save his bride. And the bride of Christ is the church. Everyone who belongs to Jesus is part of the bride of Christ. And when you see the justice of Jesus, and when you see the mercy of Jesus, when you see Jesus giving all that he is for you, it will awaken within you a desire to trust him, to trust him when it's scary, to trust him when you're tempted to give in to the powers around us in the midst of this world, whether it be at work or at home, whether it be in the midst of this nation or in the midst of this city. Where are your eyes, Emmanuel? Where are your eyes when you look back into the pain of your past? And where are your eyes when you look at the future and you're scared? And where are your eyes when you see that you're in the midst of a world where it seems like terrible, where it doesn't seem where we taste the terrible things that go on? Look at Jesus. He knows everything you've been through. He's tasted it all in his suffering. He is just and he loves you. And he has promised to bless his people and to make you a blessing. And he wants, as you trust him, to make the impact of your life a beautiful thing.
And he will raise you up and he will make you a blessing to the people around you. So turn your eyes on Jesus. Can you trust him today? Trust him. And the impact of your life will be a reflection of the beauty of Christ. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.